This is CNN Breaking News. Good morning, everyone. We're glad you're with us. I'm Poppy Harlow alongside Victor Blackwell. And we begin this morning with breaking news around the world. A dramatic turn of events this morning for the Russian mercenary leader accused of launching a rebellion. The president of Belarus telling our own Matthew Chance that Yevgeny Prigozhin is back in Russia in St. Petersburg instead of being in exile in Belarus. Now this comes as Russian state media reports police raided Prigozhin's properties in St. Petersburg. Just last week, the Russian government had claimed it was dropping charges against him. During the raids, Russian police say they uncovered stashes of gold and money and wigs and guns and several passports allegedly belonging to the mercenary leader under different aliases. We've got team coverage from Washington to Belarus. Uh, let's start with Matthew Chance in Minsk. Uh, you just spoke with the president and you got an answer to the question that everyone has been wondering about the whereabouts of Prigozhin. Yeah, and we were all absolutely shocked by the answer of the, the leader of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko. You're talking to me uh, from the Palace of Independence, which is one of Lukashenko's main offices in the centre of the uh, Belarusian capital, Minsk. And he called a few members of the international press around uh, to hold what he said was a conversation about the events, the dramatic events that have been unfolding over the course of the past uh, couple of weeks or so. And I asked him specifically, what could he tell us about Wagner, about the mercenary Russian group and about its leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who he had offered exile in Belarus in exchange for them calling off the armed rebellion that they staged in Russia last week? Take a listen to what Alexander Lukashenko had to say. I wonder if you could provide us all with a, a bit of an update on... Uh, the whereabouts of the Wagner leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Is he in Belarus or not? In terms of Yevgeny Prigozhin, he is in St. Petersburg. Or maybe this morning he would travel to Moscow or elsewhere. But he is not on the territory of Belarus now. Not on the territory of Belarus, which is something we did not know before this morning. Also, I asked him about whether Wagner forces, the fighters of Wagner, had taken up his offer and relocated to Belarus as well, because that was also part of the deal that Lukashenko offered. And he said, as yet, no Wagner fighters have come to Belarus, and he's not at the moment preparing any facilities to house them. And so it all kind of indicates or hints at the idea that this deal that was brokered to bring to an end the military uprising in Russia last week is now being reviewed. Perhaps the Kremlin is reviewing it. And that's backed up by the fact that on Russian television within the past few hours, there's been new video put out of a police raid in St. Petersburg, the Russian city of Yevgeny Prigozhin's house. And they found extraordinary things there, weapons, cash, gold, passports, some of which are said to have you know, multiple identities of Yevgeny Prigozhin, and wigs as well, presumably for, for disguise. And, you know, it's, it's sort of really discrediting the Wagner leader. Um, and it does imply that there may be some kind of move against him by the Russian authorities. I've asked the Kremlin whether they can comment on that, but they have not got back to me. But when they do, obviously, Victor and Poppy, I'll let you know. Matthew, on that point, uh, in that conversation, the, the journalists you and others had uh, with Lukashenko, he was asked what happens to Putin next, and he essentially said, uh, what happens to Prigozhin next, and he essentially said, everything happens in life, but then seemed to say, don't worry, Putin wouldn't be dumb enough to have him killed. 
Yes. Um, I mean, look, I mean, he was pretty non-committal about what happens uh, to Prigozhin. And he said a number of times uh, that he wasn't able to read the future, etc., etc. But he said, look, you know, he does not think that Putin at this point would, would kill um, you know, Yevgeny Prigozhin. But the fact that he brought that up, the fact that he even mentioned that as a possibility, I think, led us all to sort of like sit back and sort of you know, take stock of the seriousness of the, relation, of, the, of the situation that the Wagner leader is now in, that you literally have, you know, Alexander Lukashenko, the leader of Belarus, talking about the possibility, playing it down, yes, but talking about the possibility of him being killed by Putin. And so clearly, you know, well, the indications are there are moves afoot at the moment, first of all, to discredit the Wagner leader, possibly in the future to take action against him. But, but who knows what? All right, Matthew, stay with us and let's bring in now CNN contributor and former CNN Moscow bureau chief Jill Doherty and CNN political and national security analyst and White House and national security correspondent for The New York Times, David Sanger. Uh, Jill, let me start with you. The deal in, in many respects to save Prigozhin's life was that he would then go in exile to Belarus. Um, and this was something that Lukashenko brokered. Now that he is Prigozhin in uh, St. Petersburg, was there a deal? Is he going to be prosecuted after we see this raid? What's your read on this news? Um, it's priceless, actually. This we knew about a week ago when Putin said, by the way, we've given, the Russian government has given Prigozhin uh, roughly $2 billion, and we hope not too much was taken, or so, kind of an indication. We knew at that point that the other shoe could definitely drop, and that Prigozhin could not necessarily be killed, but he could be prosecuted for corruption. And I think the play is, is working out exactly like that. This deal is, is essentially Putin's deal with Lukashenko playing the role of uh, trying to help Putin by creating this deal. It doesn't work, and maybe it was never supposed to work. So if Prigozhin now is on state television, or his apartment is, with money and wigs, etc., it's just an example of the government now, Putin's government, coming up with the proof that Prigozhin should be prosecuted. Prigozhin was too dangerous for Putin to allow to continue to exist wherever he was. David, do you think uh, President Lukashenko is telling the truth? Well, Poppy, um, shockingly, uh, we have um, been misled here. It was President Lukashenko who, in late June, said that Prigozhin was in Belarus. Um, U.S. and Ukrainian intelligence has said since they don't believe he ever stepped foot in, in Belarus. And as we all discussed on this show a week ago, being in Belarus wouldn't offer him any protection from being assassinated, uh, attacked, seized uh, from, uh, from Moscow. So that's been the first problem that he's running through. The second is that we actually think that along the way, um, Prigozhin here has proven himself to be too valuable in many ways to kill, as Lukashenko suggested, that you don't know what, what, how his troops would react and others. So instead, what you're seeing is that the Russians are systematically dismantling the Wagner Group. They've been moving some of the assets to other companies, 
friendlier to uh, to Putin himself. Uh, some are reportedly going to uh, Alina Kabeva, the mm-hmm. uh, former gymnast who U.S. intelligence suggests mm-hmm. uh, is the mother of, uh, of several of Putin's children. Uh, but she also runs something called the National Media Group. So you're seeing Wagner being folded back into government hold, which, of course, is exactly what caused all this to begin with. Matthew, back to you. Um, is there any evidence, any indication even from President Lukashenko that Prigozhin was ever in Belarus? Does he even make that claim? Well, I mean, beyond, beyond the facts, as David just said, that, that he said it a week or so ago that, that Luke. That, that Prigozhin was in the country. No, there's been, there's been no supporting evidence. We haven't managed to verify it. But the fact that he's backtracked now, I mean, is quite astonishing. But it does make a lot more sense because one of the most incredible, unbelievable things about the way this, this whole military uprising ended in Russia a week or so ago was that this figure, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who effectively led an uprising against the Kremlin, was just allowed to walk away into what would have been a relatively comfortable exile, as we understood it, in, in Belarus. That just felt you know, unrealistic, didn't it, given what we know about what happens to people who cross Putin. They fall out of windows, they get poisoned, they get imprisoned, mm-hmm. they, you know, something negative happens to them. They don't just walk away from this. And Putin was absolutely furious about what happened, about this uprising, about being betrayed by Wagner. He spoke about it in terms of treachery. And of course, Putin's made no secret of the fact that treachery is not something he forgives. Yeah, one of the questions over the last two weeks is why has Prigozhin been spared the, the fate of an Alexei Navalny, uh, Viktor Yashenko and Alexander Litvinenko, who all were poison, poisoned after going against uh, Putin and the Kremlin. Matthew, uh, we're going to let you get back into uh, this news conference and check back with you as more comes in. Uh, Jill and David, stay with us because, of course, all this is happening in the broader context of Russia's war in Ukraine. New this morning, at least four people are dead after Russia unleashed a barrage of missiles on Lviv. Uh, The Lviv Regional Military Administration says the attack destroyed more than 30 houses, 250 apartments, an orphanage, two university buildings and a school. Ukrainian officials say it's the most devastating attack on civilians in the Lviv region since the beginning of the full-scale war. Right now, search crews are digging through the wreckage for people who are trapped under the rubble. Lviv is, as we know now, hundreds of miles away from the front lines and right near the border with Poland, of course, a NATO ally. We are now seeing video of Russian fighter jets harassing U.S. drones over Syria. This happened yesterday morning. The Pentagon released this footage. Take a look. The Air Force says the drones were monitoring ISIS targets. That's when Russian pilots intercepted them, flying dangerously close, setting off flares and forcing the drones to take evasive action. Our our national security reporter, Natasha Bertrand, is live at the Pentagon. No surprise, obviously, you have U.S. forces with the anti-ISIS coalition in Syria. You've got Russians in Syria backing up Assad. But the fact that this happened in this manner, how significant? 
That's right, Poppy. So the U.S. and Russia, they are operating in pretty close proximity to each other. And the U.S. has seen an uptick in these kinds of Russian provocations uh, over the region and in the country over the last several months. But what happened yesterday morning was that the U.S. was operating three MQ-9 drones over Syria as part of an anti-ISIS mission. And three Russian fighter jets moved to intercept them. And according to the top commander in charge of Air Force operations in the Middle East, they did so in a very unsafe and professional manner. What the three Russian fighter jets did, and we can see it on video here, is they got extremely close to these drones and they started releasing parachute flares in front of them, essentially in order to block their view. One of the jets also engaged its afterburner in front of one of those drones in order to, again, block its view and force uh, them to take uh, evasive maneuvers. And so this is part of a broader pattern that the U.S. has been seeing from Russian fighter jets in the region, according, again, to the top commander in, in the Middle East for, for Air Force operations, it appears, according to him, that the Russians have actually been trying to get into dogfights with uh, uh, American manned fighter jets operating over Syria. So not only trying to harass these drones here, but also trying to harass American fighter jets. Of course, all of this comes within the broader context of the war in Ukraine. U.S. officials are not entirely sure what is causing this uptick in harassment by Russian jets against U.S. Uh, aircraft. Uh, but they do say that it is a disturbing pattern and then they have called on the Russians uh, to act in a professional manner when both are operating in such close proximity uh, in the country. Bobby. Natasha Bertrand, thanks so much for the reporting for the Pentagon. Let's bring back in our experts. David, saying to you, this also comes, you know, just, just a week over <clears throat> Putin being humiliated on the world stage with, with, uh, with Prigozhin's uh, attempts there. And so I just wonder how you think this factors into this moment for Russia. Sure. Well, Poppy, the big fear in Washington and among President Biden's aides has been that the war will expand either horizontally or vertically. Horizontally means beyond the, the uh, borders of Ukraine. And now in Syria, where obviously the U.S. and Russia are both operating, we're seeing potential clashes come up so far. Fortunately, nothing very serious. The attack on Lviv is right on the Poland border. It's right near where uh, Poland is helping ship in all of the arms into Ukraine. So far, the Russians have not touched a NATO country. But when they do, or if they do, that obviously has severe risk of expanding the war. Vertically means reaching for nuclear weapons, and uh, we've already heard uh, from Belarus that they are going to be installing Russian nuclear weapons under Russian control. We haven't seen evidence that they're ready to go yet. They were supposed to be ready around now. And of course, in just a week, less than a week, you'll see uh, President Biden in the region, in Lithuania, at the NATO summit. You can't imagine Putin's going to stay quiet for that. Yeah. Jill, do you see some some residue of the Wagner uh, uprising on this? Is this uh, are these I'll put Lviv and what we're seeing over Syria together. Are these face saving measures for Putin? Well, I think um, a big picture that if you look at this you know, latest thing with Prigozhin, it's just an example of the extreme corruption of the Putin system. And so that's the way it works. And the war is now, everything was uh, controlled by Putin. He's the guy who decided to start the war. He's the guy who decided to hire Prigozhin in the first place and pay him billions of dollars to carry out 
you can really say dirty deeds that the Russian government didn't want to have its fingerprints on. So right now, when Prigozhin is lost, they're not sure what to do about Wagner. The war in Ukraine is not going exactly the way they want. And there are other places Putin, that they have trouble. Putin is now trying to show that he is in power, that he is stable, the people love him, etc. I think, on the contrary, it is more unstable in Russia and that his regime is more unstable. And that means that there's going to be a lot more instability everywhere that he is involved. That's Ukraine and other. All right, Jill Doherty, David Sanger, thank you both. Of course, we'll have more on the breaking news. Uh, Lukashenko saying that Prigozhin is in Russia, not in Belarus. Thank you both. All right, ahead, new Trump Mar-a-Lago search warrant details have been released. What we're learning about new surveillance video just as Trump's aide, Walt Nada, is set to be arraigned in court hours from now. Also, the Secret Service this morning combing through cameras and visitor logs, trying to figure out who brought drugs into the White House, what those lab results uncovered. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We are tracking significant developments this morning in two federal probes into former President Donald Trump. In just a few hours, Trump's personal aide and alleged co-conspirator, Walt Nauta, will plead not guilty in the classified documents case. Take a live look at the federal courthouse in Miami. This is where this hearing, this arraignment, will take place. And it comes after a judge unsealed more of the Mar-a-Lago search warrant. The previously redacted information reveals the FBI obtained surveillance video of Nauta moving dozens of boxes in and out of a storage room before the Justice Department showed up to retrieve any and all classified documents that Trump still had. Meantime, Arizona's former House Speaker made some big news on CNN last night about the special counsel's investigation into the other federal probe on 2020 election interference. Listen. We talked about your call with with Trump and with Giuliani, as you just mentioned there. They were both on that phone call. Have you been subpoenaed by the special counsel? Uh, I ha- oh, that's a great question. I, I'm hesitant to talk about any subpoenas, etc., but I have been interviewed by the FBI. In the January 6th investigation? Uh, or excuse me, I in the effort to a- overturn the election results? Correct. It was four hours of, of, uh, of a discussion that they had with me. You, you will recall the former Republican House Speaker, Rusty Bowers, refused to bow to intimidation and attempts to get him to back off efforts in the legislature to decertify Biden's 2020 victory in Arizona. You'll also remember there he is when he was testifying before the January 6th House Select Committee about the phone calls he received from Rudy Giuliani and former President Trump. Our senior crime and justice reporter, Caitlin Polance, has the latest for us. We'll get to that in a moment because that was a really significant moment in the interview that our other friend, Caitlin Collins, did with them. But first, what happens today in the courthouse with Walt Nada? Right. So this is the Mar-a-Lago documents case that's charged Donald Trump and his co-defendant, Walt Nada. But Walt Nada has to come back to court because he still has to plead not guilty. It's been about a month since that indictment. Uh, But he has had this dragged out for a couple different reasons. Couldn't make his last appearance. He also needed to find a Florida lawyer. So we're watching for two things. We're watching whether or not Walt Nada shows up in person today. He doesn't absolutely have to. Uh, We think that he may be there in person. Uh, 
for the first time by himself, really, in court without Donald Trump by his side, the man that he's traveling with quite consistently as his political aide. And we're also watching to see who shows up as Walt Nada's lawyer in Florida to be added to his team. This really is putting the spotlight on him as the co-defendant, as that man that uh, was even known by the Justice Department last year uh, before they searched Mar-a-Lago to be a person who was moving boxes and the Justice Department realizing there were boxes missing. Now he's accused of obstruction, obstructing justice, lying to investigators. But this puts the spotlight on him and moves him and Trump directly toward trial. There's a lot of things that need to happen in this trial. This mm. kicks it off. Uh, Poppy and Victor. Yeah. Significant day. Let's talk now about this news from last night uh, that Caitlin Collins got. Fill out the significance of uh, Rusty Bowers, former Arizona House Speaker, saying that he was indeed interviewed by the FBI. Right. So, Victor, every day or every couple days, we're learning about another person essentially in a battleground state who's talking to the special counsel's office, providing them evidence of some sort, very, very likely testimony that could be used in building a case. And so we know the special counsel's office has been focused around those efforts, what Donald Trump did, the pressure he wanted to be placed on lots of people, including Mike Pence, and also what top lawyers around him were doing. And in recent weeks, you know, we heard about fake electors in Nevada testifying to a grand jury. We heard about Trump campaign officials who were working to organize this fake elector scheme across the country to, got, to try and get battleground states, including Arizona, to overturn the vote. We also heard about the secretary of state in Georgia talking. Now we get Arizona, too. Rusty Bowers in Arizona says he talked to investigators and he talked about those calls from Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump himself. really shows the expansion that we're learning of in terms of how many states this probe, this federal probe looks at. Caitlin, thanks very much. Some sad news to report this morning. Two New Jersey firefighters have died after they responded to a ship fire in the port of Newark late last night. That's according to CNN affiliate WABC. Fire officials say they were trying to put out the flames but got pushed back by the intense heat while backing out of the structure. Uh, we will have, of course, updates on this developing story. Our thoughts with their families, of course. All right, this just in the Super PAC, backing Mike Pence, out with a new ad hitting Donald Trump's relationship with world leaders. Xi Jinping, Putin, Kim Jong-un. We'll play it for you next. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. America doesn't stand with thugs and dictators. We confront them, or at least... We used to. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. There can be no room in the leadership of the Republican Party for apologists for Putin. There can only be room for champions of freedom. That's a new ad from a PAC supporting former Vice President Mike Pence, and it does not hold back on his former boss. Joining us now, Ellie Honing, CNN senior legal analyst, former assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, and former federal and New Jersey state prosecutor. Also, John Avalon, CNN senior political analyst and anchor. John, let me start with you. He's tapping the desk. He's so excited to talk about <laughs> you that. You say this is the biggest political domestic story, at least of the day. Why? <laughs> Absolutely. Look, <laughs> take a step back. You have a former vice president of the United States accusing his former boss, who was running against a primary, of being too tight with dictators, mm. for being an apologist to Vladimir Putin. 
That is a very big deal. And invoking the Reagan mantle is a different path for the Republican Party going forward. Pictures of him sucking up to Putin, Kim Jong-il. That is a very big deal. That is a tough shot from this Pence-associated pack. You know what's... Oh, sorry. I, yeah, I have ahead. a question for John, if sure. I could. Go on. Where is Mike Pence? I mean, why is he so straightforward and unequivocal <clears throat> in an ad like that? Yeah, every time he's asked about January 6th, we get into, well, we didn't see eye to eye. I won't condemn Well, not it. really. Can we play for yeah. you what happened? Yes. Uh, I think this was yesterday yeah, when a voter came up to him in a pizza shop and asked him about this. Do we have that? Guys in the control? Oh, we don't have it. We'll get okay, it. But essentially, he, he didn't punt. He directly answered, you know, Trump was wrong. I didn't have that right. I don't have that right under the Constitution. I thought that was a change in tone. And I think it's interesting that it comes as this ad comes. Yeah. I, I, I know the event you're talking about, yeah. and you're, you're exactly right. Look, uh, this is what Pence needs to do. He needs to stop and, and stop sort of tiptoeing around and draw a clear contrast on matters of principle. And when it comes to cozying up to dictators, that's a pretty clear way to do it. So is uh, you know, requests to overturn the election. Um, so, so, and look, this is a pack, so it's going to be a little more full-throated. I can, yeah. I can quibble as a former speechwriter with his use of the words ar- weakness arouses evil. Weird, weird verb for Mike Pence. Nonetheless, um, <laughs> nonetheless, that is, this is a very tough ad, and it's a core point of, of the, it's worth going on offense on, particularly with Putin in the news. She. And, 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 uh, and, and North Korea. But, John, before we move on to Arizona, because I certainly want to talk about that, um, he defended, Pence defended the meeting with Kim Jong-un, the several meetings. He defended the tweets about his, uh, Trump's relationship with Putin. Yeah. So now he's going to say, well, you shouldn't be so close to them. For four years, you supported your boss getting closer to these people. That's a very fair point. And this is where Pence is in a bit of a box, because he was until the very, very end. He would defend anything Donald Trump did. He was totally devoted, um, even when there were contradictions with his own personal beliefs. Um, And that's where there's a credibility gap with Mike Pence. But he can make it up now by saying, I'm a candidate now, and this is what I really believe. But critics will point that out, and they'd be right to Betting memories are short, maybe. Maybe. That's a good bet in America. Um, Ellie, let's talk about Arizona and the significance of the reporting we just got from our colleague, um, Caitlin Polance it tells us, obviously, DOJ is focused on more than just Georgia and that famous phone call. What else does it tell us? Yeah, that's the big takeaway. Let's remember, this was a seven-state strategy. We're all very focused on Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, that infamous phone call. But this tells us that DOJ, we now know for the first time, they are speaking to an important highly placed individual in one of those other states among the seven. The fact that we now know that Rusty Bowers was interviewed by the FBI. He said for four hours mm-hmm. is enormously significant. It tells me they need his information. He said to Caitlin Collins last night that he provided corroborating documents to the FBI, documents that Rudy Giuliani had given to him. He told us that the FBI was focused on Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, the attorney. Um, it tells me that this investigation is focused on the broader scheme here as it should be. But if they've spoken to Rusty Bowers, one would imagine that if he hasn't been interviewed yet, there's going to be an effort to speak with the governor. I, I agree. He, I agree. The governor thinks it's weird that he hasn't I been agree. I think to. Now, it could be that he has been spoken to in the meantime, right? That yeah, reporting we don't know goes that. back yeah, a yeah, little yeah. bit, and the Rusty Bowers revelation is 12 hours old. So yeah. it could be, but I can't conceive of a, a witness list that would include only Rusty Bowers, but not the governor. Yeah. Yeah, especially because we had reporting that, you know, there is another tape of Trump trying to pressure uh, the former governor, Ducey. And, but that would, that's exactly what jumped out of me about that article. And yeah. Ducey saying, how have I not been, been interviewed yet? Um, but Arizona, Ellie's exactly right. Arizona was a major front in this overall effort to overturn the election based on bogus 
evidence, uh, and it's right for it to come. Remind people why they would want to talk to Governor Ducey so much at the famous silencing of the so, Trump phone call as he's right. certifying the results of a Biden win in Arizona. Right. So, so you remember that moment, Ducey is, Governor Ducey is certifying the win, the president's calling and he sort of, you know, ignores yeah. it, push, pushes it away. Um, there has been, as there is the, the infamous tape of, of President, then President Trump calling Brad Raffensperger, there's apparently another tape, this is according to, I believe, Washington Post reporting, yeah. uh, that, um, that Trump, there's another tape of Trump doing much the same thing to Governor Ducey, trying to sort of influence him to find more votes. Remember the margin in Arizona being just 10,000 votes. And when that bogus cyber ninja, uh, you know, audit occurred in conjunction with a lot of folks in, in, the, in the Trump sphere, uh, Biden actually, it's worth remembering, uh, ultimately when the audit was done, came up with 300 votes more uh, than he had previously. That's uh, right. But, but yeah. After, I'll yeah. never forget the video of the yep. cyber ninjas. Yeah, cyber ninjas. Yeah. The, the, the now defunct cyber ninjas. Yeah, all right. John, <laughs> Ellie, thank you both. Cocaine has been found at the White House. How did it get there? That's what the Secret Service and everyone wants to know. The fingerprint and DNA analysis officials are conducting next. This morning, the Secret Service is launching a full-scale probe into a small bag of cocaine discovered at the entrance area of the White House on Sunday. A lab test confirmed the white powdery substance left behind was indeed cocaine. The White House now is trying to figure out how it got there. So is that the, the working theory right now, that it was likely a visitor? And are you confident that this was not a White House staff? There is investigation. They're going to get to the bottom of this. What I want it to be very clear is that this is a heavily, uh, heavily, tra uh, heavily traveled, uh, to be more accurate, area of the campus of the White House. And, uh, and it is where visitors uh, front to the West Wing uh, come through. This is the part where they come through when it comes to coming to the West Wing. I just don't have anything else. I'm not going to speculate on who it was. CNN's Arlette Sines is with us now from the White House. So there is this investigation. What do we know about it? Well, Victor, Secret Service is using every tool at their disposal to try to determine who brought that baggie of cocaine into the White House. A federal law enforcement official says they're running DNA tests and fingerprint analysis on the bag, as well as having Secret Service comb through surveillance video and visitors logs. Now, this uh, baggie of a white powdery substance, which was later confirmed to be cocaine, was found within the West Wing of the White House on Sunday. It was found in an area uh, that includes cubby where visitors who are being brought through for tours of the West Wing that are often led by staff, that is where those visitors can drop off their cell phones. Uh, there's also White House officials who can drop off their cell phones and other electronic devices there if they're heading into a skiff to view classified information. Now, the White House has said that there is this investigation into the matter. As you heard Corinne Jean-Pierre there say, uh, it's an area that is heavily traveled through. It is where these visitors come through as they are looking to go on their West Wing tours. But one official cautioned there is a, a chance that they are unable to determine who exactly brought that baggie of cocaine into the White House because it is an area where there are many people who travel through. And also the size of the bag was so small, it could make it difficult to determine whose baggie of cocaine it was. But for now, the investigation continues here at the White House. Certainly does. Yeah. I'll let uh, the president uh, is hitting the road today to further push his Bidenomics, a word that now people are using, agenda. Where's he heading? 
Well, Victor, the president is heading down to West Columbia, South Carolina, a ruby red state, but also a state that helped turn around Biden's presidential campaign back in 2020. He will be touting these private investments in clean energy manufacturing that the White House says will create 600 jobs in the state. It's all part of the White House's push to try to sell this idea of Bidenomics, as they're trying to show that uh, some of the president's legislative accomplishments, like the Inflation Reduction Act and infrastructure law, are already paying off for voters. But it still comes at a time where many Americans are anxious about the state of the economy, with only two-thirds of Americans at this moment, uh, or two-thirds disapproving of how the president has been handling the economy, making this a tough sell for him heading into the 2024 uh, election. All right, let's sign for us here at the White House. Thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN law enforcement anal analyst Jonathan Wackrow. He also served as a former secret surgeon service agent under President Obama. Good morning. They're going to figure out who this was, right? I mean, you fingerprint the bag, look at, you know, video footage, right? Well, well, they're going to try, and they're going to use every investigative tool that they have at their disposal to make attribution to who brought this Schedule II illegal drug into the White House complex. You know, and that does, as Arlette had, had mentioned, it includes you know fingerprint analysis. If there was you know some t sort of a whole or partial print left on the plastic bag, any type of DNA forensic evidence that uh, could be there, as well as video surveillance. Uh, you know in the area of the White House, but also outside around uh, you know, the entrances and exits. Now, all of that being said, it is very difficult to make you know, direct attribution absent of someone, you know, the, the visual uh, presentation of the forensics. The reason being, as Arlette had said, this is basically the crossroads of the White House. There are hundreds of people who pass through there every single day from White House staff, Secret Service, military, uh, intelligence officials who are going into the White House Situation Room is only steps away from these cubbies. And then you have the White House tour. So there are a lot of potential individuals who could have introduced this, um, this substance into the White House. So making attribution, and again, just trying to level set expectations here, may be very difficult huh. for investigators. Let's put that map back up because I think this is interesting. Uh, as large of a complex as this is, mm -hmm. uh, we're talking about an area that, as you've listed, some of the people pass through. It helps to, um, I don't know, set the scope and the, the universe of people who could have, have brought this in. So walk us through it. So, listen, uh, you know, on the map, what we're looking at is this is the ground floor of the West Wing. Uh, this is where all of the official um, uh, duties of the, the, the administration are held in the West Wing. But the ground floor has, has two, you know, big significant areas that draw staff and military and intelligence personnel uh, into it. One is the White House mess. Uh, that is the, uh, the, the food, the, the presidential food service. And then most importantly is uh, the situation room. Now, uh, during the weekend, the situation room takes a, a, a lower posture unless there is a moment of a crisis. Uh, but tours do have access into this area. Uh, Friday through Sunday, you do have West Wing tours that start right at this area of the ground floor of the of the West Wing. They, the tours will drop their phones into these cubbies and then uh, move along through the through the remainder of the tour. Now, 
I think that there's a higher probability that this this uh, substance was introduced at that location by a tour member, and the reason being, it was the greatest volume of people at that time. Mm -hmm. Typically, uh, West Wing staff are not active uh, in the West Wing while the president's away, and you know, over the holiday weekend, the president was away. So this is all you know, leading more towards uh, a member of a tour group uh, as opposed to a member of staff. Okay, Jonathan Wackrow, thank you for your expertise. We really appreciate it this morning. We'll see where this leads. Coming up for us, this. Hope for Alzheimer's patients. The FDA poised to approve a breakthrough drug to slow progression of the disease. We're gonna tell you how much it costs and who will get access next. Hours from now, Florida's first lady, Casey DeSantis, is set to make her first solo campaign appearance where she's hitting the trail and will it help her husband? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. New this morning, the FDA is set to decide whether it will fully approve the first Alzheimer's drug to show that it could slow the disease's progression in certain patients. But the decision could also have other implications, including who could get access to it. CNN medical correspondent Meg Terrell explains. Six years ago, Joe Monmany saw a neurologist for what he thought were a few minor problems with his memory. Yeah, she came back and said, you know what, Joe? Um... I, you actually have early, younger onset Alzheimer's disease. You're likely going to start to experience declines in the next five years. And you may not recognize your family in five to seven years. Now 59, Monmany is one of millions of Americans living with Alzheimer's disease. But this year, new hope emerged. A drug aiming to slow down the disease's progression got accelerated FDA approval in January, based on the fact that it clears amyloid plaque buildups in the brain associated with Alzheimer's. But Medicare declined to cover it until the FDA granted a fuller traditional approval based on a bigger clinical trial proving the drug has benefits for thinking clearly and being able to function in daily life. Without insurance, the medicine, called lecanemab and sold under the brand name Lakembi, cost $26,500 a year. You had this treatment at your fingertips and suddenly you had... Medicare saying, yeah, but you can't quite get access to that at this point in time. A larger trial funded by the drug's makers, ASI and Biogen, did find that Lakembi can slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease by about 27 percent. It's the first time a drug has proven to alter the disease's course. It was a very um, dismaying experience getting a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease and to be told that we don't have anything that will slow down or stop the disease in its tracks. Columbia University's Dr. Lawrence Honig says this is the beginning of a new treatment era. But he warns that Lakembi is not a cure and not everyone will be eligible for the drug. How difficult do you anticipate the conversations being with people who are more advanced and maybe are too advanced to benefit from the drug? We're already uh, having these conversations that sometimes aren't uh, so easy. It's not that we know it's not good for people with moderate or severe disease. It's just that we don't know. 
Side effects could be worse for people with more advanced disease as well, he says. Already, there's something to be aware of. About 13 percent of patients receiving the drug in its trial had brain swelling. 17 percent had brain bleeding, compared with 9 percent in the placebo group. There we go. Lakembi is administered through IV infusion once every two weeks. Infusion centers like Vivo Infusion are gearing up for an expected surge in new patients. In certain areas, I anticipate we will receive probably at least 15 to 20 percent more um, patient referrals for this drug. Joe Monmany is hoping he'll be able to get it for a chance for more time with his wife and two grown sons. Like any parent, I would love to see them actually get married and have a family. I just want to experience many of the activities that most people take for granted. Meg Terrell, CNN, reporting. Meg Terrell, thank you. Thank you, Meg. All right, now this. We now know where Wagner leader Yevgeny Prigozhin is this hour. Apparently, he's back in Russia. That's according to the president of Belarus. This is weeks after his failed mutiny. Also new details about what was found in Prigozhin's home. Russian police seizing wigs and gold weapons and passports. What else they uncovered? Plus, the man accused of targeting former President Obama's home did so after a Trump Truth Social post. What Trump shared with his millions of followers ahead. Good morning, everyone. It is the top of the hour. We're glad you're with us on a big news day. Happy to have Victor Blackwell by my side. Uh, Let's start with five things to know for this Thursday, July 6th. This morning, Donald Trump's alleged co-conspirator, Walt Nauta, is expected to plead not guilty in the classified documents case. We're now learning about surveillance video the FBI has of him moving boxes at Mar-a-Lago. And breaking this morning, Russian police say they've raided the home and office of the mercenary leader who staged last month's rebellion. The Kremlin is refusing to say where Yevgeny Prigozhin is, and the president of Belarus tells us that Prigozhin is not in his country as agreed to. New overnight, at least four people are dead after a Russian missile attack on Kyiv. Ukrainian officials are calling it the worst attack on civilians in the region since the war began. Also this morning, thousands of UPS workers across the country preparing to go on strike with time running out to reach a deal. And Casey DeSantis is about to go solo for the first time. She'll be hitting the campaign trail in Iowa on behalf of her husband's presidential bid. CNN This Morning starts right now. We are glad you're with us. There's a lot of news to get to. And it's all coming in like right now. It's still happening. That's exactly right. We have major developments, as we just mentioned, in terms of Russia. We have that. We also have what's going on uh, here in the United States with the former president's classified documents probe. We begin this morning on two federal investigations into Donald Trump. Just hours from now, Donald Trump's personal aide and alleged co-conspirator, Walt Nauta, is set to plead not guilty in the classified documents case. Take a look at the federal courthouse in Miami, where the hearing will take place. This comes after a judge unsealed more of the Mar-a-Lago search warrant. The previously redacted information reveals the FBI obtained surveillance video of Nada moving dozens of boxes in and out of a storage room before the Justice Department showed up to retrieve any and all classified documents that Trump had. Meanwhile, Arizona's former House Speaker made some big news on CNN last night about the special counsel's investigation into the 2020 election interference. 
we talked about your call with with Trump and with Giuliani, as you just mentioned there. They were both on that phone call. Have you been subpoenaed by the special counsel? Uh, I ha- oh, That's a great question. I I'm hesitant to talk about any subpoenas, etc. But I have been interviewed by the FBI. In the January 6th investigation. Uh, or excuse me, I in the effort to a- overturn the election results. Correct. It was four hours of of uh, of a discussion that they had with me. Now, remember, the former Republican House Speaker Rusty Bowers refused to bow to intimidation and in attempts to get him to back efforts in the legislature to decertify Biden's 2020 victory in Arizona. He testified before the January 6th House Select Committee about phone calls he received from Rudy Giuliani and former President Trump. CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Polance has the latest for us. We will get to that in a minute. But first, we're coming up on uh, Walt Nada's uh, hearing this morning. Uh, What should we know? Right. So the co-defendant of Donald Trump accused of obstruction and making false statements. He is set to be in court this morning. Short and sweet is what we expect this this proceeding to be. Uh, He needs to enter his pleading of not guilty. That's been expected for a long time now. And finally, today, we do think that that's going to be happening where there will be a lawyer showing up with Nada. There's a possibility Nada is there himself. Uh, But this proceeding, it puts the focus on this co-defendant of Donald Trump. Trump, a man uh, who is so aligned with him that they're rarely seen apart whenever Trump is traveling for for political reasons. Trump is not going to be there at the hearing today. But this is really highlighting how Walt Nada is a defendant on his own. And so he's going to be kicking off this proceeding to head towards trial, entering that initial pleading. Uh, But also these two men are so aligned. They both want to go to trial, sources are telling me. That is the plan for both of them, Trump and Nada both, even if their interests could diverge at some point. And Trump has been very looped in on Walt Nada's legal defense approach, who his lawyers might be. Their def- his defense team is is fully clued in. Uh, and also Donald Trump is going to be paying for Walt Nada's lawyering, lawyering going forward, or at least entities that Trump controls will be doing so. So that's the classified documents probe. The other probe that special counsel Jack Smith is overseeing in terms of efforts to overturn the 2020 election, that probe got more interesting last night with news that Rusty Bowers, the former Arizona House Speaker, a Republican, talked to the FBI for four hours. Why does that matter so much? It did. I mean, this is one of those people that you would expect criminal investigators looking into the efforts in battleground states to overturn Joe Biden's wins there uh, and put Trump into power. You would expect them to reach out to someone like Rusty Bowers, but we didn't know that he had actually spoken to investigators and what he had spoken to investigators about. And what Rusty Bowers said he had talked to uh, investigators about were calls he had directly with Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump after the election where they were pressuring him and he was saying, no, show me evidence of election fraud. uh, And they couldn't do it. And so he is just another person now in Arizona that, like others in this investigation, has talked about the direct calls they received from Trump. We know just in recent weeks, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, who got that call from Trump to find votes in Georgia, he too was speaking to investigators. So all this goes in to this criminal investigation and whether they may want to charge Trump and others. Caitlin Polant setting the table with the reporting. Thanks so much. 
Let's talk about all of this, the legal implications. Ellie Honig, our senior legal analyst, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, is here. Ellie, good morning to you. Rusty Bowers, the significance? Yeah, this is a big deal, Poppy. Let's remember, there's been so much focus on the state of Georgia. However, this was really a coordinated seven-state strategy. In fact, the state that was most closely contested, the narrowest margin of victory, was Arizona. And we now know for sure that the feds are dug in and looking not just at Georgia, but also at least at Arizona. The big news from last night is that Rusty Bowers, the former Arizona House Speaker, a longtime Republican who actually supported Donald Trump in 2020, we learned last night on Caitlin Collins' show that he has been interviewed by the FBI in the special counsel investigation for four hours, as we just talked about. That is a huge deal. And to get a sense of what he talked about, he told Caitlin that he was asked about Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman. But let's flash back to almost exactly a year ago today when Rusty Bowers testified in front of the House January 6th committee. Let's take a listen to what he said. At some point, did uh, one of them uh, make a comment that uh, they didn't have evidence, but they had a lot of theories? That was Mr. Giuliani. He said, we've got lots of theories, we just don't have the evidence. And I don't know if that was a gaffe or maybe he, he didn't think through what he said. I said, what would you have me do? And he said, uh, just do it and let the court sort it out. So crucial testimony there from Rusty Bowers. And again, we now know that he has spoken with Jack Smith's team. Let's stay in Arizona. Uh, we learned yesterday that the Arizona uh, Secretary of State's office uh, has been subpoenaed by the special counsel. What do we need to know there? Yeah, so really important. This is a subpoena, meaning that the Arizona Secretary of State has to turn over documents to the special counsel team. Now, what could they be looking at? Let's remember one of the key focuses of the DOJ investigation is this fake elector scheme. We hear that phrase all the time. Here's what it actually means. These same seven states that we talked about before, each of them submitted a purported slate of electors, documents. They sent it into the archives, to the Senate, saying, we are the duly elected electors for Donald Trump. Donald Trump didn't win any of those seven states. Joe Biden did. And so we know that DOJ has spoken with some of the people who signed and claimed to be electors. We don't know exactly who. We know they've been given immunity which tells me that DOJ sees those electors as witnesses and thinks that their testimony is relevant to their ongoing criminal investigation. Ellie, also, this comes days after The Washington Post reported that Trump tried to pressure then-Governor Doug Ducey. Yeah. But as far as we know, and maybe something changed in the last few days, they haven't talked to him yet? Yeah, so that's really interesting. And again, things may change. We just learned about 12 hours ago about the interview uh, involving Rusty Bowers. Doug Ducey was the governor of Arizona at the time. We know that he received calls from Donald Trump about trying to overturn the election. It's curious to me if DOJ hasn't spoken to him. Uh, any witness list that includes Rusty Bowers should also include Governor Ducey. So next time he's on air, someone needs to ask him if he has spoken with the FBI or if he has been subpoenaed either. Hey, Ellie, head back to the table. Let's right. talk about all of this. CNN senior political analyst and anchor John Avalon is back, along with CNN political commentator and host of PBS's firing line, Margaret Hoover. Great to have you both here. Margaret, let me begin with you and the significance yeah. of this for the probe, because I think, obviously, it tells us it's getting bigger. It's getting bigger. What it, the first thing I thought of, you know, the, the last uh, official entity that tried to put all of these disparate pieces of open source information that we, the public, knew about was the January 6th Commission. And this strikes me that 
they did a real favor to the public by th by threading all of the, the putting all of these different pieces of data together in one narrative, and DOJ is now following all of that but with the gears of justice behind it, right? This is no longer an accusation from a House committee that doesn't have any more authority other than to put the story together in one piece. This is yeah. now the Justice And Department. led by a guy who has prosecuted Democrats mm. and Republicans before. John, context? Look, I mean, the, Margaret's exactly right that the Jan 6 committee actually got this ball moving. DOJ was a little slow to pick it up, frankly. But now, since Jack Smith has been appointed, and thank you for pointing out that he's got a record of being a clear and impartial investigator, because, of course, that comes under attack in our, our partisan era, uh, things are really accelerating. And I think folks had focused on Georgia, but they'd forgotten about the other six states. They'd forgotten about the complete sort of clown car crash of Arizona in terms of that that desperate searching uh, for, for, for voter fraud where there was none. Um, and, and so this is, you know, sometimes we forget because we get caught up in the day to day. There's nothing quite like this in American history, this attempt mm. to overturn an election by a sitting president. And what they seem to be zeroing in on is the question of intent. Uh, and that's where it all, all, all comes to bear. And there has been a notable shift in the pace, intensity, focus of this investigation since Jack Smith became special counsel in November. So we're going on mm -hmm. eight months or so now. A year ago now, we were in the midst of those, yeah. I think, really important January 6th committee hearings. And a lot of folks were saying, where's DOJ? Why is DOJ getting beat to the punch on witnesses like Rusty Bowers, like Cassidy Hutchinson, which they did get beat to the punch. And, and frankly, that's on Merrick Garland. Ever since Jack Smith took over, he's been doing exactly the kind of things that people were saying, where is Merrick Garland on this? And look, he's, he has now spoken to a lot of different crucial people up to and including Mike Pence. And so I do think his decision day is drawing nearer. We don't know exactly when, but it has to be soon. This Pence ad that John thinks is the biggest domestic political story of the day, and I should say it's the Pence, uh, the pro-Pence pack. Uh, pack. Right? Yes. Yeah. Say that three times yeah. fast. Yeah, um, let's play a bit of it. Do we have it? America doesn't stand with thugs and dictators. We confront them. Or at least, we used to. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. There can be no room in the leadership of the Republican Party for apologists for Putin. There can only be room for champions of freedom. Post Pence uh, vice presidency says all of what his former boss did with Kim Jong-un and, and uh, Putin is bad. What do you think about, uh, about this ad from the PAC? So I, uh, I read Mike Pence's biography that came out just a few months ago, or a, a six, a, a year ago maybe. I interviewed Mike Pence on my program on PBS. I, I did it so John Avlin didn't have to. And so <laughs> I understand why he's surprised. But the truth is it was very clear as Mike Pence was writing his campaign document that is his biography that this is the place he was going to differentiate himself from Donald Trump apart from January 6th. It was all going to be about foreign policy. Policy. He makes the point of telling the story about how he went up to Vladimir Putin so Vladimir Putin would know that the guy behind, beside Donald Trump knew that they had interfered in the 2016 election. He makes a point of telling the stories about each of the dictators that he had interactions with, how his interactions differentiated from Donald Trump's interactions with them, that he didn't tolerate as the vice president the fawning nature that Donald Trump had with the dictators around the world. So I am not at all surprised that this is, while the PAC does it and it is not sanctioned, it yeah. is not coordinated, this narrative was blessed in Mike Pence's autobiography. Well, and, and it's about time 
he started doing the broadside in public as opposed to in the page of his book. I appreciate your brushback pitch early in the morning. Uh, but but I think it is a big deal that he's drawing that contrast really clearly in an ad, albeit through a pack, because yeah. as Margaret said, this is a point of, of clear differentiation on conviction. And the fact that he didn't make those noises yeah, in public during the administration. Conviction, maybe. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, good. This is a clear contrast that should be drawn. This is a complete contradiction of decades of, frankly, bipartisan foreign policy, uh, where, where American presidents don't kiss up to dictators. But I will, I will give you credit. You know, he never... How about that? <laughs> he, never dis he, never, he never dismisses the things Donald Trump did. He never disassociates himself from the record right. of Donald Trump. It's but a question he just of puts a little bit of air. What did he say after Helsinki, for example, that press yeah. conference? Or what did he say or really not say after that Trump... Bill O'Reilly interview about equivocating, no, no right? No place for tr Putin apologists, I mean, except... Yeah. I mean, he sat in the box uh, at the Olympics with Kim Jong-un's sister. There was no, like, well, direct face-to-face -face there. Well, he in his book, and he makes a very clear point of, of, of orchestrating that in a way yeah. that was sent a very clear signal. That's oh, what he God. says in his book. <laughs> John, Margaret, Ellie, thank you all. We now know where the Wagner chief, Yevgeny Prigozhin, is at least said to be this hour, and it is not Belarus, we'll tell you, weeks after his failed mutiny. Plus, overnight, at least four people were killed, dozens more injured in Lviv. A Russian military strike hits a residential area. We are live in Ukraine. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. A dramatic turn of events this morning for the Russian mercenary leader accused of launching a rebellion. The president of Belarus tells our own Matthew Chance that Yevgeny Prigozhin is in Russia in St. Petersburg instead of being in exile in Belarus. Meanwhile, Russian state media reports the police raided Prigozhin's properties in St. Petersburg just last week. The Russian government had claimed it was dropping charges against him. But this morning, the Kremlin refused to comment on Prigozhin's whereabouts to CNN. During the raids, Russian police say they uncovered stashes of gold and money and guns and wigs and several passports allegedly belonging to the mercenary leader under different aliases. We have team coverage from Washington to Ukraine to Belarus this morning. Let's start with Matthew Chance. He is live in Minsk. Uh, of course, he spoke with President um, Lukashenko. Tell us more about what you learned. This bombshell that Prigozhin is in Russia. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely stunning, isn't it? And I'm talking to you, of course, from the Palace of Independence, which is this extraordinary marble edifice in the middle of Mint Square, is one of, which is one of the offices of, of Alexander Lukashenko, the leader of, of Belarus. And he gathered a few journalists around me, included to in what he said for, for a conversation, he said, about the recent dramatic events. And I asked him, you know, what about Wagner? What is happening with this supposed deal that he brokered to end that military standoff in Russia last week and give Yevgeny Prigozhin, who's the Wagner leader and his fighters, exile in exchange for them calling off uh, that uprising? Take a listen to what Lukashenko had to say. I wonder if you could provide us all with a, a bit of an update on uh, the whereabouts of the Wagner leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Is he in Belarus or not? In terms of Yevgeny Prigozhin, he is in St. Petersburg. Or maybe this morning he would travel to Moscow or elsewhere. But he is not on the territory of Belarus now. 
Well, he says he's not in Belarus, uh, and that, of course, contradicts the statements that the Belarusian leader had made in the past, that he was in Belarus. And it throws open the whole question is, is this deal that was negotiated to end the Wagner uprising last week, is it being renegotiated? Because state television in Russia uh, earlier today is broadcasting images of what they say is a police raid of Yevgeny Prigozhin's house in St. Petersburg, at least one of them. They've seized gold bars, cash, um, passports with fake names on it, apparently belonging to Yevgeny Prigozhin, and wigs, presumably used for disguise. It's a whole sort of process, a crackdown, it seems, on anything to do with Wagner, anything to do with Yevgeny Prigozhin. And it doesn't bode well for the man who headed Wagner, of course, still heads it, but who led that rebellion against the Kremlin. Um, and so we'll see what happens in the future. Uh, Lukashenko, the leader of Belarus, saying he does not know what's going to happen. But he did say he did not, did not think that Putin would kill Prigozhin. He said that's not something he believes uh, will happen. But the very fact he raised that possibility of Prigozhin being killed does not bode well uh, for the Wagner leader. There were so many questions about Prigozhin's future before this news conference. This, of course, creates many more. Matthew, stay with us. Ukrainian officials say four people are dead. Many more are injured this morning after a Russian missile strike on an apartment building in Lviv. Rescue teams are digging through the rubble right now, trying to find anyone trapped inside. The city's mayor says dozens of homes and cars were also damaged. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is promising a, quote, tangible response. Our Ben Wiedemann joins us live from eastern Ukraine. Ben, how are the rescues going so far? Well, they've been going, doing this uh, since about three o'clock in the morning, local time, uh, just after the, this missile hit. And uh, at the moment, the death toll is at least four with at least 37 injured. Among the dead is a 21-year-old journalist, a woman. And also among the dead is a 95-year-old woman who survived the Second World War. This is being described as the most devastating attack on civilians in Lviv. This is a city in the far west of Ukraine. It's considered one of the safer areas. Uh, and therefore, lots of people have actually fled to Lviv in the hopes that they would be safe. But clearly this uh, underscores that really there's nowhere in Ukraine that's safe. Now, another thing that's come out is that as many as 10 bomb shelters in Lviv were locked shut when this happened. And therefore, there's a, an investigation into why they were shut, uh, partially, probably, because so many people didn't expect Lviv to be targeted uh, in this way. Now, also significant, it, it was a caliber missile uh, that hit the building. It, the caliber is a Russian hyper, hyper, hypersonic uh, missile that's very accurate. It carries a payload of more than a thousand pounds of high explosives. It's that exact kind of uh, rocket uh, that hit the restaurant here in Kramatorsk last week, killing 13 people. Wow. And Ben, before you go, I understand you spoke with several captured Russian soldiers near Bakhmut recently. What did they tell you? Well, they told us stories of an army or at least an army of convicts that are on the front lines that only received two weeks of basic training compared to, for instance, the U.S. Army has 10 weeks of basic 
training that they didn't have enough supplies, they didn't have enough weapons, uh, they had very little food, their commanders were oftentimes under the influence of drugs and were given nonsensical orders. It really paints a picture of disorder in the Russian ranks. There seemed to be scraping the bottom of the barrel. The two, two of the prisoners we spoke to had been convicted of uh, drug charges, and the only way they got out of prison was to sign up for these six-month contracts. So it, it really paints a picture of an army that uh, not too impressive. It absolutely does. Uh, that is startling. Ben, thank you for the reporting on both fronts. Matthew Chance is back with us now, along with CNN contributor and former CNN Moscow Bureau Chief Jill Doherty and former CIA Chief of Russia Operations Steve Hall. Steve, let me start with you. If this is true uh, from Belarusian President uh, Lukashenko that Prigozhin is in St. Petersburg, not in Belarus, what does this tell you about the deal? What does this suggest about Putin's decisions and moves forward? You know, Putin still must be asking himself, you know, what do I do with a, how do I solve a problem like Prigozhin? I mean, he, he's, <laughs> there was a plan initially, uh, which now, uh, after Lukashenko has spoken, appears not to be the neatly tied package uh, that all of us were presented uh, last week. And so the real question is, why is Prigozhin even still alive at this particular point? I mean, let's review what he's done. He, you know, his troops marched halfway to Moscow, killing a bunch of Russian servicemen who attacked him on the way. He publicly criticized Putin's real reason for invading Ukraine, which supposedly to you know, rid the country of Nazism and you know NATO threats and all sorts of other nonsense, he's called all of that into question. Any single one of these things would seem to have, would have under normal circumstances, spelled the doom of Prigozhin, and yet he still lives. It's possible that he has more power than Putin would want him to. He was received very well in Rostov, and he might indeed have some supporters in Moscow. Else, why would he have simply decided to, mar to send his troops to march up? the road uh, to try to get there. So a lot of questions still out there. Uh, but I think uh, Putin doesn't exactly know what to do with them at this point. Well, Jill, you know Russia. You know the Putin, uh, you know, 23 years in power and his mind better than so many people. Why do you think Prigozhin is still alive? I think Putin's got two problems. He's got Prigozhin and he's got Prigozhin's men, the Wagner hmm. people. So what do you do with Prigozhin? Prigozhin was kind of a, you know, a rock star, at least publicly in Russia for a while, winning battles, you know, taking Bakhmut, et cetera. But he's also very valuable. He was very valuable to Putin because he ran this big operation that is literally around the world, especially in conflict mm -hmm. zones. Also, we can't forget running the troll factory in St. Petersburg that interfered in the American election in 2016. So this guy had a lot of power. And of course, that is a problem when he goes, you know, has a rebellion against Putin. So I think what you're doing is the deal was organized ultimately by Putin, that deal with Lukashenko. Lukashenko is a proper Soviet era guy is saying, well, I don't know what's going on. So uh, Prigozhin is apparently back in St. Petersburg. Why? That's where his office is. That's where his residence is. And I think what we're probably going to do is prosecute him for corruption. And you see that playing out on Russian TV. And then you have to, of course, figure out what to do with Wagner, which is another issue. It's very valuable. But back to the basic 
Putin created this because it is a product of all of the corruption of his government. You know, Matthew, I found it a bit ironic when you said you're standing in the Hall of Independence there in Minsk, because one of the, the hallmarks of uh, Lukashenko's involvement in the, the war has been his allyship with Putin, and some would call it subordinates. People called him Putin's puppet. Putin's puppet. Does this happen, this announcement, this confirmation from Lukashenko, without permission from Putin, without um, uh, the direction from the Kremlin? I mean, it's, it's interesting what you say, because you're absolutely right. Um, increasingly over the past couple of years, really, since 2020, when there was a big civil uprising here in Belarus, um, Lukashenko has become increasingly dependent on financial support from Moscow, on diplomatic support. He's been isolated by much of the rest of the world because of the terrible uh, human rights record here. And Putin is exploiting that, using Belarus as a launch pad, for instance, to, as one of the launch pads, to strike at Ukraine at the beginning of the war nearly a year and a half ago, using Belarus to deploy tactical nuclear weapons, which are now apparently in place here in Belarus, but controlled by Russia, but to further threaten the West. And of course, using Lukashenko, I suspect, although Lukashenko says it was his initiative, but I suspect, and many other people suspect, it was the Kremlin that forced Lukashenko to ha you know, hold out that olive branch to uh, Evgeny Prigozhin last week uh, to defuse the immediate uh, crisis. I, I think there's a sense, to try and answer that question about why is Prigozhin still alive? I genuinely believe that Putin fumbled this in the sense that he should have acted earlier to intervene to defuse the animosity between Prigozhin and the defence minister and that chief of staff, Gerasimov and Shoigu, who he was criticising fiercely. And he said is one of the reasons he went on this march to Moscow, as he calls his uh, military uprising. He didn't do that. It all blew up and got out of hand. And so he's been managing that crisis ever since. What we're seeing now, though, I think, is Russia really moving to, you know, kind of dissolve Wagner businesses and to discredit Yevgeny Prigozhin, perhaps ahead of an arrest. Steve, right. just to put a button on it, Steve, how striking is it what Matthew just experienced this morning? I mean, they got called to this sort of makeshift press conference. Matthew, is that how you would describe it? And then all of a sudden they hear this stunning news from, uh, from Lukashenko. Yeah, it's really fascinating because, you know, Lukashenko <clears throat> is indeed under the thumb Sorry, of Putin, but he, he's under greater threat from Moscow than he is from Kiev. And I think that he might see some opportunity. One of the, look, one of the great opportunities and things about being an autocrat is you don't have to speak to the press. He chose to do so, which means that he must have thought there was an advantage in it for him. He may think that if the Wagner guys are in or arrived in Belarus, that he actually might have some leverage against Moscow. Perhaps he doesn't need to be Putin. But forever. It's one of the many questions we're still trying to figure out, I think. Steve Hall, Matthew Chance, Jill Doherty, uh, thank you all. Still some, some questions, obviously, there. UPS workers edging closer to a strike after marathon negotiations with the Teamsters Union broke down yesterday. We have the Teamsters president, Sean O'Brien, to give us an update next. Three hundred forty thousand UPS workers are closer to walking off their jobs. The Teamsters Union and UPS walked away without a deal this week after marathon contract negotiations to avoid a strike. They went nowhere. And if an agreement is not reached by the end of the month, 
those distinctive brown trucks could be in their tracks, stopped in their tracks, I should say. Uh, a strike could have major economic consequences since about 6% of GDP moves on UPS trucks. Here's the Teamsters president before talks broke down. Concede to our demands and give us what we deserve, and we will go out there and ratify this agreement. Or they can take the other road, where they don't concede to our demands. They stay loyal to Wall Street and forget about Main Street. Teamsters President Sean O'Brien is with us now. Sir, good to have you. Uh, first, how far apart are you two? We made significant progress since January. Uh, we were down to economics, and we thought we would have a deal around 4.15 a.m. yesterday morning. But UPS uh, quite boldly told us there was no more to give. We were focused on the part-time portion of the UPS workers who uh, work. You know, the part-time poverty doesn't work for us and Teamsters anymore. So we were fighting hard to take care of the part-timers, and UPS said we don't have any more to give, and that was it. You made some progress on uh, the MLK holiday. You made some progress on air conditioning for new vehicles, other things as well. But when you say the economics, what are you asking for and what won't they give? Uh, give me more about what the gap is here. Look, there's a, there's a gap. There's no doubt that the UPS full-timers uh, make good wages, good benefits. But what people don't know in, in the neighborhoods, they see their UPS driver and they love him, love him or her and they're happy. But they don't see the unsung heroes, the single mothers that go to work at 4 in the morning. Those trucks don't go out unless they are loaded. And our part-timers, the unsung heroes, they are working for poverty wages and we need to drive up the starting rates of pay and reward those people that made supply chain solution happen uh, during the pandemic. And UPS made record profits, $100 billion. They need to share some of that. They're focused on rewarding Wall Street. They should focus on rewarding Main Street. Those are the men and women who make them a success, 340,000 of them. You're talking about those drivers and the preloaders. Um, I have several truck drivers in my family, so I, I know the work. L let me ask you about this. You talked about the, they're being uh, well compensated. Um, you uh, acknowledged in your Senate testimony that the starting salary for some of those drivers, $93,000 a year uh, at the top of the industry. So people who are at home hearing that UPS might be the workers might be going on strike and they're already at the top of the heap starting for this. They, they question why you tell those folks who are going to be inconvenienced what? Well, look, I'll tell them this simply. UPS didn't give 93000 a year out of the kindness of their heart. We've been fighting for decades and decades. We didn't, we didn't get anything for UPS. We had to fight for it. UPS drivers and preloaders and all part-timers provide tremendous amount of service. UPS is making record profits, $100 billion. They doubled their profits. They need to take, take care of those people and stop worrying about uh, Wall Street and focus on the people at Main Street. Let me read this to you um, from UPS. They put out a statement. The Teamsters have stopped negotiating despite historic proposals that build on our industry-leading pay. Refusing to negotiate creates significant unease among employees and customers and threatens to disrupt the U.S. economy. You say to that what? That statement is compelling but highly inaccurate. UPS chose to walk away. And if there is a strike, it's going to be UPS striking themselves. Does this in some way hurt the uh, drivers and those preloaders uh, ultimately? We know after the, the last strike, there was a loss of some of the business that was not uh, reclaimed. There are some uh, experts and analysts in the field who say that maybe UPS will get 70 percent back of its business, but maybe not all of it. And of course, that would require potentially fewer preloaders, fewer drivers. And then that comes back to your your Teamsters members. 
Well, UPS, whatever they choose to do, if they choose to do the right thing and concede to the demands, will be fine. But if they don't, that's a self-inflicted wound that they're going to have to shoulder the uh, burden of that. And look, like anything else, UPS has good times and bad times. Um, this volume will come back. There'll be need to hire more people. So any, any negative impact on this is going to be self-inflicted by UPS. And it won't impact your members? It could, but it's going to be a short-term impact. Last question for you. You think a strike is more likely now than not? Um, I didn't think so as of 4.15 uh, yesterday morning. But again, UPS, if they choose not to do the right thing, they'll be striking themselves. All right, Sean O'Brien, thank you so much. Thank you. It's a really fascinating interview because it affects everyone. It affects industry. It affects the individual. Six percent of GDP and 340,000 people might be on the picket line soon. Yeah, and you know you said you have truck drivers yeah, in truck your drivers family. Yeah, truck drivers in my family, how yeah. that's impacting. We'll see where this goes. We promise to stay on it. Meantime, Casey DeSantis hitting the campaign trail today in Iowa. It is her first solo event as her husband tries to become president. We'll take a deeper look into the role that she's playing. Casey DeSantis, the first lady of Florida, who is currently on a mission to be the next first lady of the United States. Well, she is hitting the campaign trail in Iowa today. It marks her first solo event in support of her husband's presidential campaign. The once former local news anchor has been described as the governor's closest advisor. She has also been described as his secret weapon, but also his greatest asset and his greatest liability. Let's talk about all of this to someone who knows her extraordinarily well in terms of her reporting on it. Emily Mahoney, political editor of the Tampa Bay Times, who regularly reports on Governor Ron DeSantis and Casey DeSantis. Good morning, and thanks so much for joining us. So we're going to see her out solo for the first time today. And I just mentioned she's been described by many as DeSantis's closest advisor, someone he really trusts and leans on. What should the people, voters, expect from her? Right. So this is her first time with a solo event for the presidential campaign. But all of us in the Florida political world know Casey's um, appearances very well. She's been doing this type of thing uh, for a long time in the aid of her husband's political career. And she uh, one of the greatest assets she is viewed as bringing politically is her ability to humanize Ron DeSantis. He is at this point, it's well known that he is not somebody who's naturally warm. Um, he can be viewed as awkward or aloof in uh, sort of one-on-one -on -one interactions and even sometimes on stage. And Casey, as a former talk show, talk show host and TV reporter, is very good at telling anecdotes about the family, um, sort of, you know, getting a laugh out of people about the kids and also sort of bringing a warmth um, in the way that she describes his political agenda even. And so that is something that I think we'll, we'll definitely see in Iowa today. And that's often the role of a spouse in some of these political campaigns, right? And, and every cycle... Um, the spouse of a candidate is often called the secret weapon. Hillary Clinton was a secret weapon. Michelle Obama, secret. Uh, Nancy Reagan was a secret weapon. But talk about this political relationship and how this is different. Absolutely. Yes, Casey is is definitely much more than a spouse who stands next to her husband and waves at the crowd. 
Um, everybody in Florida politics knows that she is his closest advisor. Um, DeSantis is known for keeping a very small inner circle. He doesn't easily trust people. She is the same way. And so a former campaign official once told me that the sounding board starts and stops with Casey. Mm. So there's very small inner circle really at the core of it is her. And she is the one who uh, will, you know, counsel him on all sorts of decisions, policy and political. You uh, write in your profile on her, which is fascinating, about uh, a role that she played in this ad for his 2020 reelection campaign. I want to play part of that ad. But if you want to know who Ron DeSantis really is, when I was diagnosed with cancer and I was facing the battle for my life, he was the dad who took care of my children when I couldn't. He was there to pick me off of the ground when I literally could not stand. He was there to fight for me when I didn't have the strength to fight for myself. That is who Ron DeSantis is. And your reporting gives us a new lens on that because you report that that was unscripted. How did Floridians react to it? Yes, that's correct. And that ad was, I would say, the most, probably the most talked about ad in terms of the uh, 2022 gubernatorial midterm election here in Florida. And what's interesting about it is it doesn't feature Ron DeSantis directly at all, um, but it was considered the most effective ad of his if, of his reelection campaign because of this sort of raw emotion that we see from Casey and her ability, like I said, to really give him a more human lens um, and give give what feels like, you know, fairly intimate insight into a struggle that they didn't give a lot of public um, access to, which was her battle with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Well, today is the first of likely many solo events for Casey DeSantis. Uh, Emily Mahoney, thanks so much for the insight. Thank you. Nearly half of all tap water in the U.S. is believed to be contaminated with forever chemicals. Yikes. Fill up your glass. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Sanjay Gupta is here to break down the results of a new study and what it will all mean for your health. Mm. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. A new government study estimates nearly half of the tap water in the U.S. is contaminated with forever chemicals. The scientists now believe these human-made chemicals are much more hazardous to our health than previously been believed. CNN chief medical correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta is joining us now. Sanjay, good morning to you. Is this as bad as it sounds? Yeah, look, I mean, we've known about these chemicals for uh, some time. I think what this new study really highlights is just how prevalent these chemicals are. And there's been some new data, as you point out, Victor, about how problematic they could be as well. So first of all, the chemicals, these forever chemicals, a lot of people know them as PFAS chemicals. That's parafluorinated or, or polyfluorinated alkyl substances. That, that's an acronym. Um, that, that's the stuff that makes your, your pans non-stick. So you imagine a substance like that that can do that to your pans if it gets into the environment, 
it's indestructible. Grease doesn't kill it, heat doesn't kill it, water doesn't kill it. That's why they're called the forever chemicals. But what they were doing in this particular study was they were trying to get an idea, okay, we know they're out there, how prevalent is this? They looked at some 700 sites around the country and they picked areas that were urban areas, a lot of human uh, living there, rural areas, and even protected lands. And these were the different types of sites. And what they found was that in about 45% of the collections, um, these, these chemicals did exist. They existed in, in all these areas. Um, they were more prevalent, as you might guess, in areas that are more affected by humans. So urban areas, for example, had the most of these PFAS chemicals. You can see some of those places they sampled there on the map. Uh, but even in protected lands, they also found PFAS. So they are pretty ubiquitous. Now, one thing about the health impacts, um, it, it, you know, when you have something that's so prevalent, it's hard to then draw correlations between those chemicals and other medical issues. But over decades now, they've been looking at this and they have found that it can be associated with certain types of cancer, with thyroid diseases, and most recently, even at lower concentrations, they can be problematic. So that, th those are sort of the new findings when it comes to these chemicals. How do we know? I mean, I always sort of brag about New York City has some of the cleanest tap water, best drinking water around, right? I think that's true. Is it true? I mean, how do people know where they live if this is happening to them and what's being done to address it? Well, one thing I should point out about these chemicals is that you can't see them, you right. can't taste them, right. you can't smell them. Okay, so you would not know unless it's tested. So it's not like one of those things the water tastes funny or something like that. Um, the public utilities have made it a point now of trying to address this to try and remove as much PFAS. You have increased regulation. I mean, there's thousands of these chemicals out there, but there's probably a dozen or so that are considered the most problematic. So the EPA has sort of focused on that. But it's, it's challenging. And, and again, because they're forever chemicals, even if they stopped completely today, it'd probably be a generation or so before you could actually get rid of them. So it's, it's challenging unless you're testing it. A generation. Yeah, it seems like they're almost everywhere. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Appreciate you. Yeah. President Biden heading to South Carolina today where he plans to tout his record on the economy. We're going to be joined by the co-chair of Biden's re-election campaign. That is South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn. That's ahead. It is the top of the hour, 8 a.m. here on the East Coast, 5 a.m. at West. We're glad you're with us. Good morning, everyone. Happy to have Victor, my friend, by my side. Thanks Good for coming up. Good to be with up. you this morning. Thank you. Appreciate it. Here's where we begin the fate of Russia's mercenary leader, Evgeny Prigozhin. In serious question this morning, Russian police have raided his home, and the president of Belarus tells Matthew Chance that Prigozhin is in Russia and not in exile in Belarus. And you're looking live now at the federal courthouse in Miami just a few hours from now. Donald Trump's alleged co-conspirator is set to plead not guilty in the classified documents case as new details about surveillance video that apparently shows him moving boxes at Mar-a-Lago. In 2020, South Carolina helped Joe Biden win the Democratic presidential nomination, really propelled him there. Now he's making a return visit as he runs for re-election. South Carolina Congressman and Biden campaign co-chair Jim Clyburn with us live this hour. CNN This Morning begins right now.
this is where we start. Just hours from now, Donald Trump's personal aide and alleged co-conspirator, Walt Nada, is set to plead not guilty in the classified documents probe. This all comes after a judge unsealed more details in the Mar-a-Lago search warrant. It's shedding new light on Nada's role in allegedly hiding boxes of highly classified documents from federal agents. We're also now learning the FBI obtained surveillance video of Nada moving dozens of boxes in and out of a storage room before the Justice Department showed up for that planned visit to retrieve any and all classified documents that Trump still had. Carlos Suarez starts us off live outside the courthouse. So what's going to happen today? Well, Victor and Poppy, good morning. So this is the third court hearing for 40-year-old Walt Nauda. The first time around, he had trouble finding an attorney here in Miami that would represent him. The second time around, bad weather kept him from traveling to South Florida. Now, we expect his appearance in court at his arraignment later this morning to be brief. He is expected to plead not guilty to obstruction charges and to lying to federal investigators. Now, prosecutors say it was Nauda who moved a double Dozens of boxes that contain classified documents from a storage room at Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort to other parts of the property and that he lied about the entire thing. Uh, prosecutors say that this was all in an effort to keep one of Trump's attorneys from finding these classified documents that had been subpoenaed by a grand jury. Now, the federal government says that they have surveillance video, as you mentioned, of Nauda moving these boxes around the property before the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago for those classified documents. Uh, Nauda, who uh, served as Trump's military ballot, is now a personal aide, and we're told he is expected here in federal court in downtown Miami at his arraignment later this morning. In fact, Poppy and Victor, uh, the uh, two of them, uh, the former President uh, Trump as well as Nauda, uh, have been together since uh, essentially Trump's arraignment here in South Florida last month. Uh, last week, the two of them were spotted in Philadelphia, where the former president had a political appearance. Guys? Carlos Suarez, live for us in Miami. Thanks very much. Victor? Well, the special counsel's investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election results has been ramping up. Now, we've known uh, Georgia has been a key focus, but we have not heard as much about Arizona, at least until now. Last night, former Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers, who rejected pressure from Donald Trump and his allies, spoke to Caitlin Collins and said this. We talked about your call with with Trump and with Giuliani, as you just mentioned there. They were both on that phone call. Have you been subpoenaed by the special counsel? Uh, I ha oh, that's a great question. I I'm hesitant to talk about any subpoenas, etc. But I have been interviewed by the FBI in the January 6th investigation. Uh, or excuse me, I in the effort to overturn the election results. Correct. It was four hours of of, uh, of a discussion that they had with me. According to a new report in the Arizona Republic, the special counsel subpoenaed the Arizona Secretary of State's office in May and sought information on two lawsuits, one from the Trump campaign, another from former Arizona Republican Party chair Kelly Ward that alleged fraud and errors in the election results. And this comes on the heels of reporting that Donald Trump pressured former Arizona Governor Doug Ducey to overturn the results, with Ducey later telling a donor that he was surprised that Jack Smith had not called him. 
A dramatic turn of events this morning for the Russian mercenary leader accused of launching that rebellion. The president of Belarus tells our very own colleague Matthew Chance that Yevgeny Prigozhin is in Russia, in St. Petersburg to be exact, instead of living in exile in Belarus. Remember that agreement? Meanwhile, Russian state media report police raided Prigozhin's home and office in St. Petersburg. Just last week, the Russian government had claimed that it was dropping charges against him. During the raids, Russian police say they uncovered stashes of gold, money, guns, wigs, and several passports allegedly belonging to the mercenary leader under different aliases. Let's go to Matthew Chance. He joins us live in Minsk, where, Matthew, you just spoke directly with and posed questions to the Belarusian president, Lukashenko. What did you learn? Yeah, you don't get much opportunity, Poppy, to speak to the leader of Belarus. Um, it's quite a difficult autocratic country to access. You have to be specially invited. And so we did that for this you know, incredible scene here. I don't know if you can see the, the Palace of Independence, it's called. It's marble clad, it's sumptuous, and it's where the presidential office is, and it's where we met Alexander Lukashenko. He said we could talk about anything. But the main topic, of course, that we all wanted to know about is what of that deal that he supposedly brokered to end the rebellion in Russia last month and to bring Prigozhin and his Wagner fighters here. Take a listen to what Alexander Lukashenko had to say. I wonder if you could provide us all with a, a bit of an update on uh, the whereabouts of the Wagner leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Is he in Belarus or not? In terms of Yevgeny Prigozhin, he is in St. Petersburg. Or maybe this morning he would travel to Moscow or elsewhere. But he's not on the territory of Belarus now. Extraordinary, not on the territory of Belarus, because just a week or so ago, um, Alexander Lukashenko said that he was on the territory of Belarus. And so he's, he's, he's contradicted the positions uh, changed. Uh, and when you couple that with the video we're seeing coming out on Russian state television of Yevgeny Prigozhin's house, or one of them being raided in St. Petersburg, gold being uh, seized, cash, wigs, photographs, passports, arms, things like that, it implies that this deal that was supposedly negotiated is now being renegotiated by the Kremlin. And that may not end well uh, for the Wagner leader, Poppy. Wow. I'll take it. Matthew Chance uh, for us there from Minsk. Thank you so much. CNN oh, Senior Global Affairs Analyst Bjana Goladriga joins us now. Big surprise uh, this morning from President Lukashenko. What's your take? Listen, it's all fascinating, and it's all about speculating as much as you guys are. I mean, everyone that's watching this space, there have been for the past few days people online trying to decide whether or not some sightings of a man who may or may not be Prigozhin are in fact true, whether it was in St. Petersburg or Moscow. There's some Internet sleuths that suggested they spotted a bodyguard that looked like the man who had always been with Prigozhin up until this mutiny. Listen, I still believe I would not um, take out life insurance on this man is something that I said mm. last week, and I stand by that. I don't believe he's long for this world. That doesn't mean that he's in imminent danger in the next week or two or month. I think Vladimir Putin still doesn't know what to do with him. He was a huge value and asset for him with Wagner for all of these years. Now it, it does seem to appear, and listen, it doesn't matter whether he's in Belarus or Russia. These two are one and the same, and he can extradite to, to Russia anytime he wanted to. So that wasn't something that I really paid much attention to in terms of where he was geographically. 
geographically. I think for Vladimir Putin, perhaps now is a time where he wants to focus on making Prigozhin irrelevant to the Russian people. Mm. What happened last week was a big shock to the system where you saw Russians greeting him and cheering him on as he was leaving Rostov. You saw for a short time his popularity, Prigozhin's, actually go up. Since then, since the public speak speeches that we've heard from Vladimir Putin, it has gone back down. And I think what you're seeing with these raids of his buildings and his homes uh, and his office space is all meant to sort of emasculate him and to make him look smaller. They've taken control of Wagner away from him. Yeah. So maybe now is an opportunity for Russians to perhaps not view him as the the, the hero of war as he was presenting himself to be. Jill Doherty, uh, last hour said something interesting. There's what to do with Prigozhin and mm -hmm. what to do with Wagner, with, the, with his former yes. mercenary troops, if you will. H how do you distinguish that and the impact of it currently on the war in Ukraine? Like, are they just bringing those forces back into Russia, trying to put them back into the Russian armed forces? Well, many of them, they say, according to Russians, yeah. have already signed up for the Russian military, yeah. which is a, a, an option that Vladimir Putin gave them. Uh, they were a huge value for Vladimir Putin for so many years to sort of be this private mercenary group that they didn't have plausible deniability in terms of any international rules that they were set By the way, follow. not just in Ukraine. No, around Africa, the world, in yeah. Africa in particular, Syria, and bringing exactly. in billions of dollars in revenue. What Vladimir Putin did was uh, acknowledge what most of us suspected, and that was that this organization, though it might have seemed private was actually funded by the Russian state. And so all of the money that he says that that Prigozhin had said all along that, that he was bringing in and the revenue that they were generating, Putin said, no, no, that wasn't something you did. It was something we gave you. Now it's a matter of time to see where these these fighters go. If, in fact, the offers that Putin you know, gave them, that he stands by them, did some of these men go home? Doesn't look like many went to Belarus. And mm -hmm. we did see some return to bases in Ukraine and eastern Ukraine as well. So time will tell. Let's fold in some of the other reporting. Uh, this bombing of a, a residential area in Lviv, of course, right next door to the uh, uh, Polish border there, NATO ally. And the, uh, the flight or the, the plane, the Russian uh, jet, that clipped a drone over Syria. Do you think there's some overlap here of the last two weeks of Putin and Prigozhin and trying to reassert, trying to, um, I guess, egg on the, the West? Uh, is there some connection here or am I, I drawing that unduly? I think perhaps anybody that thought that what we saw take place with this mutiny would bring this war to an end anytime sooner. Uh, sadly, that's not going to happen. And that's what continues to happen on the battlefield and why we see these illegal acts of war targeting civilians and going as far as Lviv in western Ukraine there. Obviously, Russians are aware of the meeting in Lithuania next week of NATO members. And so I think all of this is sort of uh, uh, Russia again showing its muscle and saying what you've been seeing and what's happened with this Prigozhin mutiny might have been a blight, an embarrassment for us, but our mission for this war continues. And notable that the head of the war, the, the Minister of Defense, Shoigu, still in place, yeah. and uh, General Gerasimov yeah. there yeah. as well. Yeah. Exactly and let me be more uh, uh, precise. There was a missile that hit that uh, residential area in Kiev. I use the word bombing, but let's in be Lviv, clear about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah a missile. In, in Lviv, my apologies. Thank yeah. you, Bianca. All right, Bianca, thanks. Okay, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has arrived in Beijing. She will be meeting with her Chinese counterpart and senior officials today, working trying to deepen communications between the U.S. and her Chinese counterparts on a range of issues, including, obviously, 
these dual dueling economies of superpowers. Yellen is not expected to meet with Chinese President Xi Jinping. This visit also is aimed at cooling tension between Washington and Beijing after President Biden called Xi a dictator last month. You'll remember right after Secretary of State Antony Blinken returned from his trip to China. Yellen will be there until Sunday. President Biden is heading to South Carolina today. He plans to tout his record on the economy. We'll talk to the co-chair of Biden's re-election campaign, South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn, next. Today, as President Biden seeks re-election, he is traveling to the state that helped put him in the Oval Office in the first place, South Carolina. His focus will be on what is now being called Bidenomics. And according to the White House, he will hone in on how his policies are spurring manufacturing investments and well-paying jobs across the country. According to a recent AP poll, Biden's got his work cut out from 64% of Americans disapprove of his handling of the economy. And today marks the president's first trip to South Carolina since 2021, also his first time there since the DNC designated it the first primary state for 2024. With us now is Democratic Congressman Jim Clyburn. He's also the co-chair of the president's 2024 re-election campaign. Congressman, good morning. It's great to have you. That's not really welcome polling for uh, a campaign that is is really betting on Bidenomics as the president heads to your state. When you also look at the polling, it shows 35 percent of people, only 35 percent of voters have a great deal of confidence or a fair amount of confidence in President Biden on the economy. He has a lot of ground to make up, does he not? Well, thank you very much for having me. You know, I think that what we are witnessing in the country today is that people are sour on almost everything. And I think that is for good reason. We have not uh, spent enough time accentuating the positives that exist today. Uh, I was a co-chair or the chair uh, of the uh, COVID-19 uh, committee, uh, and people really got in a pretty sour mood uh, during that uh, pandemic, and we're trying to build out of it. We came out of an administration uh, that talked about infrastructure every other day and never spent one dime on infrastructure. Joe Biden has put an infrastructure program in place, and people are just beginning to experience it. And I think that as we go on, people will see the connection. That's why he's coming here today uh, to talk about what his infrastructure program has done for this country and what it has done for South Carolina. I do believe uh, that in the coming months, uh, people are going to see the impact. All right, we're having some audio issues. Guys, are we going to try to fix this audio and then come back with the congressman, or are we going to just uh, barrel through? All right, uh, we got one more question for you, Congressman. Sometimes the, the gremlins in the system uh, mess up a good conversation. But you say that he's got, he's got some work to do and then people are sour on everything. Let's go specifically to a new Winthrop University poll that's specifically on South Carolina, where 44% of the people there say that their finances are worse off now, uh, far more than those who say that they're better or about the same. But what does he have to do? Is it all rhetoric or is there new policy that's necessary to, to bring South Carolinians along? Well, I think that we have to make a connection between all the groundbreaking that's going on here and Joe Biden. We've got the new, uh, the, uh, Volkswagen is bringing their new uh, 
RBA program here, we've got to show that that is a result of the Chips and Science Bill. We see malfunction junction here in Columbia, South Carolina. There's been a problem for years. It is now being fixed. They've got to see that it's because of Joe Biden's infrastructure program. The Inflation Reduction Act, uh, seniors are now paying $35 a month uh, for insulin when they've been paying $700 and $800 a month. They got to know that is Joe Biden's uh, Inflation Reduction Act. That's what we've got to do. We've just got to get people to see that these things are happening and it's a reason, uh, and the reason for it is Joe Biden. All right, Congressman Clyburn, thank you so much for your time. And of course, we'll be watching the president today in South Carolina. Well, thank you very much for having me. Sure. The July 4th holiday overshadowed by a series of mass shootings over just the last four days. What, a, what will a Republican president do to stop the bloodshed? We will ask former Congressman and 2024 presidential candidate. We'll heard about that and a lot more next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. This long 4th of July holiday ended in tragedy for so many communities across the country. A series of mass shootings over the four-day period has left at least 16 people dead, 94 injured. That's according to the Gun Violence Archive, the deadliest of these mass shootings. In just the past few days in Philadelphia, where a shooter appeared to fire randomly, killing five people, the DA there, Larry Krasner, lashed out at politicians who he says stand in the way of reasonable gun reform. Here's what he told us yesterday. It's time for people who are running for office to swear off NRA money, to swear off gun lobby money, to swear off this absurd interpretation of the Second Amendment that has been put out there by militias. Joining us now is Republican presidential candidate, former Texas Congressman Will Hurd. Congressman, good morning. It's good to have you here. First time having you on this program since you announced you're running. Look, you have had an A rating from the NRA. You've also pushed for universal background checks. If you were president, would you sign a federal ban on assault weapons? I, I don't think, it, first off, a federal ban on assault weapons is going to um, get to the president's desk. Um, and two, I don't think that is the um, um, solution that's going to solve all of our problems. Um, some of the solutions that would um, would solve the, the current problem is things like universal background checks. Um, 80% of Americans agree on that. 80% of Americans agree that a high caliber, high capacity long gun, you should be the same age to purchase that as you are to purchase a handgun, uh, which is which is 21. Um, and then also the, the issue around uh, providing support to, to, to on mental health. Everybody wants to talk about mental health when these things happen, but in between uh, these terrible events. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not doing anything to ensure that people have access um, to, to mental health, that we know who to call if we're aware of something uh, that is potentially happening. And then when you look at the events of the last uh, weekend, uh, further support to law enforcement so that they have the resources, the bodies, the manpower mm -hmm. in order to patrol their, put, so, patrol their streets. Okay, I'm going to take that as a no on an assault weapons ban. We've had one in this country, as you know, it expired. Let's move on to the issue of sure. ab abortion because you've expressed support for a 15-week ban on abortion. You voted twice for a 20-week ban on abortion. 
I, I thought it was notable that one year after Roe versus Wade was overturned, so just a few weeks ago, a new survey came out from OBGYNs, and they found real concern for maternal health. They found that since the ruling, OBGYNs nationwide say that two-thirds of them have found it has worsened their ability to respond to pregnancy-related emergencies and exacerbated pregnancy-related mortality. I ask this because you tweeted in May of last year I believe we shouldn't continue to fail women before, during, and after pregnancy. Do those statistics show that we are failing women now, pregnant women now? Of, of, of course they, they do. And, and look, if a 15-week if a uh, abortion ban came to my desk, I would sign it. Uh, but also, I, I think the states um, that are restricting this need to be making sure that they have the best uh, maternal health care, the best neonatal care. When you look at the numbers um, of black women having, having birth, it's, it's, it's the, the number of deaths is worse than many of, of countries in the developing world. Uh, that's that's just absolutely outrageous uh, that you shouldn't, in, in the United States of America, if you're an expectant mom, there shouldn't be a fear that you could potentially die in, in childbirth. And so, so yes, uh, we are failing women by not uh, making sure they have access to the resources that they need uh, before and, and after pregnancies. One of the requirements to get on the debate stage uh, and now on the ballot in Florida is to sign a loyalty pledge to whoever the Republican um, nominee is. You told my colleague and friend Dana Bash a few days ago, I can't lie to get access to a microphone. I'm not going to support Donald Trump. Even if it costs you a shot at the presidency, even if it costs you getting on a ballot in Florida, even if it costs you getting on the debate stage. I can't lie, Poppy. And, and here's the thing. The issue is not with me uh, supporting the Republican nominee. The issue is I'm not going to support Donald Trump. And here's why. Donald Trump is a proven loser. He hasn't won since 2016. We know all the numbers. He lost the House in 2018. He lost the Senate and the White House in 2020. He prevented a red wave where we thought that Kevin McCarthy is going to have a 35 to 40 a seat majority in the House and ended up being five. Um, he's someone who's not even willing to sign the pledge and doesn't want, want to debate, right? And he's someone that is just cavalier and careless with our national secrets, endangering the lives of thousands of men and women who who make sure, who, who put themselves in harm's way every single day in order to keep us safe. I just can't I can't support okay. that. And okay. I can't say, hey, I'm gonna do it, and then he gets yeah. he gets, you know, and then and then change my mind. I just can't do it. Okay. Tim Alberta wrote, uh, well, he's written two really interesting profiles of you, but one of them was in 2017. And he wrote about an experience you had at Texas A&M. You're a senior. You are running for student body president. And here's the story he tells. Heard and some friends hoped for buzz by painting hundreds of ping pong balls with his campaign logo, a black smile on a yellow face, and dumping them into a campus fountain. But the balls washed into a corner and went unnoticed. How do you avoid repeating the ping pong, ping pong ball <laughs> stunt again? Because what worked for you is when you changed strategies and you went out and you shook everyone's hand. You've said, look, I'm a dark horse candidate. How do you make sure that experience doesn't repeat itself in your run for the White House? Well, look, uh, we're one, we're not going to paint ping pong balls. Um, it'll be hard to put a, you know, an R on, on that ping pong ball. Uh, but but here's, here's the issue. Um, you know, I, I ran for office in, in 2009. 
Um, everybody, nobody thought a black Republican could win in a 72% Latino district. I won the primary, didn't get 50% of the vote, and went to a runoff. And I lost, I won the primary by 900 votes, and I lost the runoff by 700 votes. Here's what I learned from that experience. You gotta ID your voters and turn them out. It's that, it's, it's not complicated, it's just hard. We know the people that are interested in a candidate that's not afraid of Donald Trump, but is articulating a vision for the future. When, when you were, were talking to, um, uh, in your previous segment, um, about the problems with Joe Biden's numbers, uh, even Democrats and independents want to see something different. We know who those people are, and we are working uh, to make sure, you know, if we get those 40,000 people to go to herdforamerica.com and give Elise a dollar, I'm going to try to have the uh, requirements to get on the debate stage um, in order to take this message to people. We know who they are. We're going to go talk to them. That's why I was in the North Country of New Hampshire. I was the first presidential candidate to go to that uh, part of, of, of the state this cycle. That's why I was in the rain and you know, walking in parades. Um, that's the fun part to me in this job. I actually like people. And we're going to take this message um, to folks because people are ready for something different. People know we live in complicated times and need common sense. Something that is also striking about the way that you have run your offices before in politics is something else that Alberta points out in his profile of you, and that is how many Democrats you have employed. Mm -hmm. I mean, he talks about your veteran caseworker not shy about denouncing the Republican Party, your district staffer shaking her head when asked if she's a Republican, your chief of staff at that point used to work for a Democrat. I'm interested in if you were to make it to the White House, would you bring Democrats in to work with you? Would they be in your cabinet? Well, I, I want to bring so so this is a long way off to, to, to think through those issues, but I'm going to bring uh, the best people that I trust who's going to get the job. I know, done, but that's right? a non-answer. You've talked about how looking. important it is no, to, look, to bring people. It, it is. I look, <laughs> I, I'm also not going to, you know, is, is there a scenario in which I can see um, me putting Democrats in an administration? Of course. Okay. Right. Um, but saying that I have clear plans to do that right now um, mm. is not the case. And, 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 and ultimately what I want, I want smart people that are going to be able to help us deal with things like how do we ensure that artificial intelligence doesn't upend every industry and leads to, you know, to actually improve jobs, not unemployment. Mm. How are we going to finally deal and win this new war with the Chinese government. I need the, the best minds. And if some of them are Democrats, then, then of course, mm -hmm. we'll evaluate okay. that. But, but you, making that pledge right now would be, would, be, would be difficult for me to do. You just brought up AI, and you brought this up last time you were on the program, noting a poll that says 65% of Americans are concerned that AI is essentially going to take their jobs. You've also touted, in your words, writing the first national strategy on AI. But can you actually tell people what that would mean if you were to be president, what you would do? You're on the board, for example, of OpenAI, the creator of ChatGPT. You know, that's accelerating this. What would you do as president that would save those jobs? Sure. So, so first and foremost, right, artificial intelligence is here and it's coming and it is going to upend every industry, not in 10 years, but in two 
three years. And the first thing that I would do is is work with Congress to pass legislation that says AI has to follow the law, period, full stop. We have a number of rules um, to, to protect our civil liberties, to protect our civil rights, and we shouldn't carve technologies out uh, from that legislation. That would be the first thing. Second thing, Poppy, you and I can't build a nuclear power plant without getting some kind of permits. So if you have a, 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 a tool and in, in, an AI system that is powerful, and we could define what powerful is. Hey, this has got to be submitted to some kind of review and, and permitting process. Maybe NIST. Right? This is the National Institute of Standards and, and Technology. Uh, that would be the, the second thing. And, and then three, we would be making sure that identifying the skills that our kids are going to need, that we start getting those even as early as middle school. We should have coding in middle school, in every middle school. And then when it comes to high school, we should have things like advanced statistics so that our kids are, are ready but for, for just, jobs just, uh, that don't exist today. Just to put a button on it, the permitting you just talked about in the second part of your answer would mean that something like chat GPT, which again, you're on the board of OpenAI, wouldn't be allowed under a herd presidency? I, I was on the board. I'm was. No you were, I apologize. Wouldn't be allowed yeah. to be on the yeah. market without being permitted? When people couldn't use That's it? Correct. Um, you, well, you would have to have a, a some kind of a, a review. You know, we know some of the things that we should, you know, an algorithm shouldn't do in order to protect people's rights and uh, not be biased, uh, make sure that it's not doing things that you don't intend it to do. And so, yes, before those things mm. uh, were, were be able to put out into the wild, there should be some review and some permitting. And and, and guess what, Poppy? Most of the, the companies that are involved in this space um, are supportive of this concept. And, they, and this idea because they recognize the, the tools are being so powerful. Like the best analogy I can make for artificial intelligence is it's equivalent to nuclear fission. Uh, nuclear fission control gives us nuclear power, clean energy that can last forever. Nuclear fission uncontrolled gives you nuclear weapons. And so we need to be taking the steps now uh, while we can and rem remember that this is not about us perfecting a algorithm. This is a race. And, and our, 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 our existential threat, the Chinese government, is trying to do the same thing. And they are not developing this tool with the idea of civil, protecting civil liberties and protecting civil rights in mind. And so that's why this has ramifications um, all over the world. Well, Heard, thank you very much. Please come back. Of course. Good to have you. All right, let's get into it now. CNN senior political analyst and anchor John Avlon, CNN political commentator and host of PBS Firing Line, Margaret Hoover and Ellie Honig, CNN senior legal analyst and former assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. I've been taking notes on grunts and hmms and okays <laughs> while you all have been watching that interview with Will Hurd, also our conversation with uh, Congressman Clyburn. John, let me start with you um, on this, uh, this pledge. She says he can't lie. He won't lie. He won't sign it. He won't get onto the stage uh, by RNC rules right now if he doesn't. Look, it, this is a bit of a double blind that the RNC is playing, right? Because um, Trump himself, this is not a typical candidate. You can't, you know, th this is this is a former president. He listed all these reasons you hear from some Republicans. He's been a loser. It's more than that. He tried to overturn an election. Mm. Uh, and that's why it's perfectly reasonable for candidates to say, I couldn't support him. Yeah. Um, and so the, the RNC needs to create some flexibility around that reality rather than trying to create this groupthink that forces everybody in to position that people don't hold as a matter of conscience. 
What do you think I mean, of his the, reasoning? Look, the, well, I think the reasoning is terrible. I don't, I don't think you say we don't support Donald Trump because he's a loser, because he's losing until he's winning. I mean, he, he was a loser when he came down the escalator, and then he started winning, and everyone loved him. you got to make a moral argument yeah. against the man if you're Will Hurd, if you're Chris Christie, if you're Asa Hutchinson. You make the or moral argument that this man cares more about himself and his own narcissism than the Constitution of the United States, than our own national security secrets. That's the argument. The problem Will Hurd's going to have, and I like Will Hurd, I am glad he is in the race, but he has to have 40,000 individual donors. He has to have from 20 different states. Yeah. He has to have 1% in polling, by the way, from those early primary states with polls that have 800 self-identified Republican GOP voters in their sample. So this, the, the, the RNC has created incredibly difficult standards. The pledge is the least of it. Incredibly difficult standards for any candidate to reach the threshold to get on that stage. The pledge, forget about it. I mean, Chris Christie's, Chris Christie will sign the pledge and say he's going to take it just as seriously as Donald Trump did in 2016. So the pledge isn't the hard part. The hard part is what the, the RNC, a wholly owned subsidiary of Trump Inc., is making it impossible for anyone else to get on the stage in a fair way. I, I'm interested in what you thought about, we ran out of time, but his answer about making private companies get this. So he's saying, for example, that ChatGPT couldn't be put out without government regulation. It was just an interesting sort of big government statement from a Republican as it has to do with the private sector. I was interested I, I, I in what was you thought I was fascinated to hear him talk about AI, and he should be talking about AI. Everyone running for president, all of us should be talking about AI all the time. It is the most important thing that's happening technologically that will transform society. And look, this is a place that exists outside ideology. We have a long pattern in America of technology outpacing our laws. And the point he made about nuclear fusion or whatever uh, fission, whatever, whatever you want to uh, parallel you want to make, we need rules of the road. We need to make sure that there's some common sense measures. That's not necessarily big government. It's saying that, look, this, we can't allow this to, a horse to get out of the barn because its implications for humanity are too profound. But Congress hasn't effectively been able to pass anything to regulate. Not even on social media. Yeah. Congress hasn't been able to regulate anything. How do you do that? Yeah, I mean, Will Hurd has some, some interesting, I think, and bold ideas, but this idea of an AI review and licensing board is not going to fly. First of all, there's First Amendment concerns. Second right. of all, how do you do that? What qualifies if some individual who has a soundboard in his house wants to create an AI version of a song, does that have to go <clears> through <throat> the board? If if a graphic designer wants to use AI to help come up with a logo, does that have to go through the board? So I think it's good that he's on the forefront of AI for the reasons John says, but a, a, an all-seeing licensing and approval board is not going to happen. Yeah, I, I, I take credit to him for putting the ideas out there. I mean, we yeah. all recognize it's a new technology. We, we got to do, do something about it. There should be some kind of... I mean, Sam Altman himself, the, the founder of ChatGPT, yeah. says... I welcome regulation. Let's be partners in this. I mean, industry needs to work with government in order to figure out how to properly regulate this thing. Inevitably, government will just be a, a half beat behind industry, as is in every technological innovation. Thank you guys very Thank much. You. We nice appreciate stuff. it. All right, the man accused of targeting former President Obama's home did so after Trump Truth Social posts. What Trump shared to his uh, millions of followers ahead? New details about the man arrested last week with weapons in former President Obama's D.C. neighborhood. Federal prosecutors say he traveled there after seeing and resharing a social media post by Donald Trump that revealed what he claimed was Obama's address. 
In a detention memo filed earlier this week, prosecutors say that Taylor Taranto began live streaming in the area shortly after resharing Trump's post. Now, the filing also notes that Taranto made previous threats against House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin. Now, Taranto has not yet been charged in connection with the last week uh, indictment. Uh, separately, Toronto had an open warrant for his arrest related to the January 6th Capitol attack. Joining us now is CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. John, it, I wonder if we're just in a different uh, landscape. There have been threats against President sure, but now to consider that as part of this is a posting from a, a previous president, are we in a completely different space? So we are. And, you know, it started off with the unwritten rule that former presidents didn't, you know, bash current presidents. So that went out the window a while ago. Yeah. This takes a, a different step when a former president is posting. Now, to be clear, because some of these stories come out of shorthand, Donald Trump didn't say um, this is Barack Obama's home address. Go there now. But he, po he reposted an old article which talks about the street that the former president lives on, in the neighborhood he lives on, who else lives in that neighborhood. And this individual who, had, who was already live streaming in the area talking about blowing up a federal building apparently redirected himself to that neighborhood and said, I'm on that street now, and this is where the Podestas and the Obamas are, and I'll meet them in hell. That's threatening language. Yeah. He said, we've got those losers surrounded. See you in hell, Podesta's and Obama's. He had an open warrant for his arrest tied to January 6th and the insurrection. He didn't try to hide the fact that he was there. He'd posted on his YouTube page things like, look, mom, I'm an insurrectionist now. The fact that this got to this point shouldn't have happened, right? Well, I don't know. There's a thousand people. Yeah. Actually, more than a thousand people who have been charged in the January 6th yeah. case. It is simply the largest federal criminal prosecution in the history of America. Um, he is one of them. And that warrant was issued on that day, the 29th. So what you actually saw here was um, the Capitol Police issuing the be on the lookout for, the FBI monitoring the social media and pushing that out, the Secret Service sending their uniform division already on patrol there, that information, agents coming into the area. You saw um, intelligence moving because his rhetoric um, had changed. Yeah. I wonder, should people be surprised that uh, this man got that close to the, to the home, to the neighborhood? Um, I don't think so. Yeah. He's living out of his van. He doesn't have a fixed address. He was already on their radar. That's a good thing. And frankly, if you Google the addresses of various significant politicians, you know, you can find either the address or the approximation or a picture of the house. Yeah. Um, he got where a lot of people could have gotten, but mm. being spurred on by a former president is the thing that's, that's really attracting makes attention. It so yeah. different. That's yeah. what makes it so different, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. oh, John Miller, thank you. Thank you, John. So the Secret Service is reviewing cameras or looking at visitor logs, trying to figure out who brought cocaine. That's right, cocaine into the White House. We'll take you live to the White House next. This morning, the Secret Service launching a full-scale investigation into what one Secret Service official called a dime-sized bag of cocaine. It was discovered at the entrance area of the White House. Officials say there are many people, staff, visitors, who travel through that area. Arlette Sines joins us live from the White House with more. So they were yesterday, they were sort of testing it, figuring out what it was. Now they know what it was. Now who brought it is the big question. 
Yeah, and the Secret Service is really trying to use every tool at their disposal to determine who bought, brought this baggie of cocaine into the White House. A, a federal law enforcement official said that they are running fingerprint analysis and DNA tests on the bag, as well as having Secret Service comb through surveillance video and the visitor's log. Now, uh, this uh, bag, this Ziploc bag of a white powdery substance, which was later confirmed to be cocaine, was found on Sunday evening. Uh, we're told that uh, there were tours that were led by staff in the, in the West Wing uh, from Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And this uh, was found in an area that's a cubby area where people can leave their cell phones uh, and other items as they are going through the tour. Now, the White House notes that this is an area that is heavily traveled through uh, for, by both visitors and staff. Sometimes staff leave devices there if they're heading into an area where they're viewing classified uh, information. But the Secret Service is engaging in this full-throated uh, investigation to try to find the person who brought that cocaine to the White House. But uh, an official cautions that there is a chance they may not be able to, to determine exactly who brought it uh, due to the number of people who are traveling through that area as well as the size of the bag. So still so many questions about how exactly that baggie of cocaine got here to the White House that the Secret Service is trying to get an answer to at this moment. Okay, our left time. Thank you. The Washington Nationals pitchers cannot stop Cincinnati Red superstar Ellie De La Cruz. Neither can their dugout. While the Nationals wanted the umps to check his back. Next. What happens when two people don't watch baseball? Read a story about baseball. We're about to see. See, I usually like lean on Phil for this baseball stuff. Phil and then ain't here. You so we're going to try to get through cheese, So I thought, you know a lot about baseball. I can just read loudly. Uh, the Washington <laughs> Nationals doing whatever they can to slow down Cincinnati Reds rookie sensation Ellie De La Cruz. I know Ellie. Uh, they had umpires check the knob of his bat during the second inning after some time, uh, everything checked out okay. But it turns out the Reds had special <laughs> approval from the league for De La Cruz to keep a plastic covering on the knob of his bat, but the umps were not aware of that. You want to pick this up? I can't sell it as well as you, but sure. <laughs> but just three innings later, he blasted a 455-foot moonshot to right field. But before he started his home run trot, the 21-year-old gestured toward the handle of his bat, appearing to tell the Nationals dugout to check it again. Cincinnati went on to win in a blowout 9-2. to That was believable. I, I, I believe it. I believe that you yes. double headers and all. Sorry, Phil. <laughs> Thank you, friends. See you here tomorrow. Yep, be here tomorrow. All right, CNN News Central is now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry.
Max subscription required.